There's one word which is pretty much pronounced the same, no matter what language you speak or what nation you come from. It's actually a Hebrew word and it's a compound word. That means it's two words that's joined together. And rather than translate the word, we transliterate it. That means that we spell it out in our alphabet and claim it as our own word um, and just say it the same way as the Hebrews do. Is anybody going to have a guess at what word I might be thinking of? I'm taking guesses. No guesses. All right, maybe if we put up the first slide of the Bible reading, it might help us. That's not usually how loud we usually say that word. Does we want it? Hallelujah, that's right. Hallelujah. It actually means Yahweh be praised. Hallelujah. Righto. Now, we, we know this word well, don't we? We know this word hallelujah well, yep. Some Christians say it lots, don't they? All right. Now, how many times do you reckon that word appears in the New Testament? Now, I'm going to make it easy for you. I'll give you multiple choice. Okay, we're going to have four, 24, 124, or 324. All right, so multiple choice. Who's going to go with A? Nobody with A. Roy's going with A. Who's going with B? Noah's going with B. Who's going for C? Okay, there's a fair few a smattering there. And D, remember, this is a word we know well. Okay, there's a fair few that are going with 324. All right. Roy was right. Four times. In the whole of the New Testament, we get to hear the word Alleluia a total of four times. And all four of them are in the first six verses of Revelation chapter 19. All right, so we're going to hear all four of them today. The Old Testament, though, that's a different story. Um, we get to hear it about 20 times in the Psalms in the, in the Old Testament, but only if you're reading the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the, um, of the original Hebrew. Um, and a few English translations are translations of the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation, but, and so they might translate it as Alleluia, but most of our modern Bibles don't have the word Alleluia in the Old Testament at all because they translate it direct from, from the Hebrew. All right, so if you want to sound really religious or if you don't mind being branded as one of those Jesus freaks, well, feel free to shout out the word Alleluia any time that it's appropriate because it means what? Yahweh be praised. Praise God. All right? So we're now going to read Revelation chapter 19. And because you're all so excited and blessed to be able to hear God's word today, all the people are going to respond, Alleluia. Ah, excellent. Righto. Revelation chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! That's good. Work with me here. This is great. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! 
And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulphur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, we're really at the business end of the book of Revelation now. This week in chapter 19, and then again next week in chapter 20, we're going to be getting two different views of the final battle uh, in which the nations, the high and the mighty and the kings of the earth, will directly oppose Christ in war. Now, when when the kings of earth oppose the king of kings and the lord of lords, when human and demonic armies oppose the armies of God, who do you suppose is going to come off second best? It's a foregone conclusion, isn't it? Christ is going to win. 
Um, and so today, in chapter 19, we have the picture of Jesus Christ victorious. He's the winner. And those who are with Christ are being invited to the wedding feast. This is looking forwards to the final things. When Jesus Christ returns, the wicked are judged, and Jesus is united with his church, with his disciples, in eternal glory. So chapter 19 begins with the great Alleluia chorus. God is praised. Alleluia. But, but why is God being praised? God is being praised because Babylon has fallen. That's what we've been learning about last week and the week before as we read chapters 17 and 18. Godless civilization, that civilization which is against God and against God's children, is fallen. It is no more. That society that grew so wealthy and lived in such luxury and yet was so unjust is fallen. That society that persecuted God's children is fallen. And so the disciples of Jesus are rightly going to rejoice and sing out, Alleluia! This is what the Alleluia chorus is celebrating, the fall of Babylon. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. God is going to save his children. He will bring glory to himself because in his power, he is going to destroy that godless civilization that has been persecuting his children for so very long. Uh, as we discovered, I can't remember if it was last week, the week before, uh, Antichrist is the one who's actually going to do it, but it is God who wills it, and it is God who brings it about. Alleluia. But the Alleluia chorus continues to flow even after it stops talking about Babylon. By the time we get to verses 6 and 7, we're not talking about Babylon anymore. And yet we're still shouting Alleluia and we're shouting Alleluia for a different reason. We're shouting, shouting out Alleluia because it's a reason for joy that there's a wedding on. What a time of joy. We love weddings. And this is the wedding of the year. It's the wedding of the century. It's the wedding of all time. It's the wedding of eternity. It's the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I do hope that the blokey blokes amongst us um, can graciously and joyously accept this metaphor that, that we're going to be a bride. Uh, I hope you're not finding that too girly for you. Uh, but we are. We're going to be a bride. The image is of the church as the bride of Christ. In just under a month, it will be 25 years since I stood at the front of a church uh, and I looked down the aisle waiting for the bridesmaids and wishing that those bridesmaids would forget that they'd rehearsed their slow gliding steps to get down the aisle. And I wish they'd just hurry up and skip down the aisle so that I could see my bride. Um, but you know what bridesmaids are like. They do exactly what they're told. And so they did their slow gliding steps all the way down, taking their time. But then finally she did appear. And... I thought I would have embarrassed her if I scanned a photo. You know, the whole time I was writing this, I was picturing my bride and I was thinking, oh, I could put a big photo of her up there and she's laughing there, so she's probably glad that I didn't. There she was. 
she's my bride. Oh, actually, at this point, was she still my fiance or was she my bride? I, I came to the conclusion she was my bride because it was our wedding day. Um, and so my bride appeared in all of her radiant beauty. Now, what those women did to themselves to prepare themselves for the wedding, well, that's totally beyond me. I have no idea what was going on. As far as I was concerned, all I had to do, or all anybody had to do for that matter, was have a shower and a shave, and Robin probably didn't need the shave either, um, and then get dressed and drive to the church. But what were the women doing for most of the day? I have no idea. To to us men, it's a total mystery, isn't it? It, uh, I have trouble getting Robin to get out of bed in the morning for a really important reason, to have breakfast. Um, But apparently the morning of our wedding, she sprang out of bed and and she's off to to participate in all sorts of mysterious rituals that were going to ensure that on this day of her wedding, she would look more beautiful than any other day of her life. Was that your aim, Mrs B? Yeah. It was a 10.30 wedding. <laughs> Still seemed like all day. The bride makes herself ready for the groom. The preparations begin months in advance. And this is the image of the church being made ready to be presented to Christ. It's the image of the bride being clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. Right? It's, an, it's an image of purity. It's an image of holiness. It's an image of righteousness and righteous deeds. It's important it actually says there, righteous deeds. A lot of people will argue you don't have to do anything good to get ready for Jesus. No, no. Living the life of a disciple is, also means we live and do righteous deeds. And the angel said to John, write this. Now, that means it's really important. Uh, sometimes we have people sitting in the congregation who take notes. And um, you know when you've said something important because they've got the notebook poised and you say something important, and, ooh, they write it down. Um, I don't see people write things very often. Obviously, I don't say anything very important very often. But you say, write this. That means this is really important. Write it down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is important. This is very important. This is extremely important. Have you received an invitation to Jesus' wedding? Are you going to be presented, along with the rest of the church, to Jesus? To spend eternity in loving relationship, united with Christ in his glory? Have you received an invitation? This is really important. Many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus told a parable once about a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out all of these invitations, but nobody would come. What an insult. How rude to decline an invitation to a wedding, a royal wedding at that. What's that saying about the person who's inviting you? It's telling them that you don't want to have anything to do with them. And when this king sent out these invitations, they said, we're not going to come to your wedding. That's telling them, we don't want anything to do with you, king. A wedding is a once in a lifetime celebration that you would juggle your calendar and make every effort that you possibly can to be there. But these people said, no, we're not coming. And again and again, The king sent out his servants to beg the people to come to the wedding. 
Some ignored them. Some went about their business. Some abused the servants who were delivering the invitation. And some killed them. And so the king destroyed those who had murdered his servants. And the invitation was sent out even further afield. It says, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called but few are chosen. What's the point of this parable? Let me start from the beginning. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to be presented to Christ as his bride. None of us deserve to be a part of what makes up his church or to be united with Christ for all eternity. That's what grace is about. The free gift of God is that even though I don't deserve it, and even though you don't deserve it, Jesus died so that all those who believe in him will have their sins washed away and they will be pure and holy. We get a new chance at life. We get a new chance at eternal life. Those who reject God, and reject his invitation in this life, well, of course, they're doomed because they don't get forgiveness. They don't get eternal life. All they get is judgment. And at this point, I want to make something very clear. Many atheists, with venom in their words, hate God and they hate his gospel because they misunderstand the gospel. And they misunderstand the whole concept of judgment. And they say, are you going to tell me that God is going to judge me just because I don't believe in him? And the answer to that is no. The answer is you're not going to be judged for not just believing in God. You're going to be judged for your sin. You're going to be judged for the wrong things that you've done. Which includes not believing in God. God is a righteous God. And because God is righteous, he cannot let sin and wrongdoing go unpunished. But God is also a loving God. God is also a merciful God. God is also a forgiving God and a saving God. And so God gave of himself. Jesus Christ his one and only son, the only righteous man, the only sinless man who ever lived, he took the judgment that we deserve. The only one who didn't deserve judgment took the judgment of many. And then he invites us to believe in him. He invites us to trust in him. He invites us to follow him. And those who repent of their unbelief, those who repent of their sin, their wrongdoing, are forgiven. And they won't be judged. Right? You're, seeing, you're seeing the importance of this. We all deserve to be judged. And we are all offered the gift of God. 
And when we let go of our pride, when we let go of our unbelief, when we give our hearts to God, to love God and to trust God, then the judgment that we already justly deserve is stripped away. It's nailed to the cross. If we have a desire to be united with Christ in all of what that entails, united to Christ we will be. That's the beginning. But there's something that we've been learning about the Christian life as we've been reading this book of Revelation. And that is the place of ongoing repentance, obedience and faithfulness. A good example can be found in the letter to the church in Sardis, which we encountered way back in chapter 3, where there were only a few who had not soiled their garments. And those who had not soiled their garments would walk with Jesus Christ in white because they were worthy. But what of the others? Remember, Jesus is talking to a church here and there was only a few of them who had not soiled their garments. What of the others? They hadn't been faithful. They hadn't been obedient. They hadn't been holy. What of them? Well, all was not lost for them. Jesus gave them an opportunity to get right with him again. Repent. Get right with Jesus again. And follow Jesus again. Only this time, do it with your whole heart. Live in faithfulness and obedience. That's the way to be pure and holy and ready for the coming of the day of the Lord. When Jesus returns, there are going to be two suppers on that day. The supper of the marriage of the Lamb, where those who are faithful to Jesus will be invited as dinner guests. And then there's another supper. And that's not a supper you want to be at. Um, and to hear about this supper, I have to talk about something a lot of people never want to hear about. While the faithful disciples of Jesus are invited to the wedding supper as dinner guests, the invitation to the other supper is an invitation to the birds. At the wedding supper, you are the guest. At the other supper, you are the meal. A couple of weeks ago, Roy and I drove to Dirrambandi, eh, Roy, for the Bush Disciples evening service. And... He had no choice, he had to come with me. Man, oh man, there were some roos on that road. It was still daylight and the roos were just everywhere. And the grass was, you know, metre high and, and so you couldn't hardly see the roos. And, um, and of course, there were carcasses all over the road and the birds were there feeding away, the crows and the red wedge-tailed eagles. And we couldn't see most of the carcasses because they were on the side of the road in the big tall grass. But as we drove along, every now and then there'd be a whole murder of crows fly up out of the grass where they were there picking on a dead root. I couldn't help but remembering this when I read today's reading. On the day when Jesus returns, the birds will be invited to dine on those who are not at the marriage supper of the Lamb. How we respond to Jesus' invitation that we receive in this life has 
enormous ramifications for how it ends for us. Our relationship with Jesus in this life has enormous ramifications for the day that he returns and for our whole eternity. Today, Jesus invites us to come to him. He invites us to repent of our sin. He invites us to leave our sin at the foot of the cross. He invites us to receive forgiveness that we don't deserve. And he invites us to follow him as Lord. How we respond to this invitation will determine whether we will be invited to the wedding supper or whether we will be the supper for the birds. Now, I don't think I need to tell you, it's not very fashionable or acceptable today to believe what the Bible has to say about judgment. Or if you do believe it, it's certainly not very nice for somebody to preach it or to insist that this is the gospel truth. It's seen as some kind of ancient Victorian way of scaring people to come to the faith and we would never want to do that. But as a preacher of God's word, to be faithful to his calling, to be faithful to his word. Today, this is what I must preach. When Jesus returns, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. When Jesus came the first time, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and make war on the enemies of God. And really all the Jews had wrong was the timing and probably the concept of who the enemies of God were. At his first coming, the Messiah came to save and to give himself as a ransom for many. But the second coming of Jesus is when the Messiah will complete the salvation of those who have been waiting for him. And he'll do this by making war on his enemies. So far, in the book of Revelation, we've been hearing a lot about how Jesus' disciples will be tempted. They'll be persecuted. They'll be tormented. They'll be imprisoned. They'll be starved. They'll be slandered and beaten and beheaded. But through all of this, we're being told not to retaliate. Because when the time comes, Jesus is the one who's going to step in and complete the salvation. It's Jesus who comes in riding on his horse. He's the conquering hero. And he makes war on his enemies. And he deals with Satan and evil once and for all. Verse 15 says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He, Jesus, will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, I don't need to explain this, do I? You get the picture. And there will be no station in life that is too lofty. There will be no station in life that is too lowly to escape God's judgment. From the greatness of kings and captains and the mighty to the lowliness of a slave. Anyone who rejects Jesus will become a carcass for the birds to gorge themselves on. This 
is the gospel truth. This is an image of the final stand against God and our Lord's final victory. Antichrist and the false prophet will be thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, Jesus. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I just find the contrast in this chapter incredible. The joy of the invitation of the supper of the wedding of the lamb held against the carnage of the supper of the birds. But I want you to understand, I just called it the supper of the birds. God in his word calls it the great supper of God. You know, so often modern preachers attempt to distance God from the concept of judgment and, and the event of judgment. But God doesn't distance himself from it. God is every bit as much involved and glorified in the judgment of the faithless as what he is in the reward of the faithful. And a lot of people can't accept this, but that doesn't stop it from being true. For thousands of years, the servants of God have been inviting the peoples of the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the majority of them have rejected that invitation. It's like that king sending out his servants to invite people to the marriage of his son. But they kept rejecting him. They've been invited over and over again and yet they reject Christ. They reject his grace. They reject his mercy. They reject his costly sacrifice. And they choose to go it alone, having every confidence in themselves that I'm going to be okay. But they won't be okay. So today, I'm asking you to search yourself. At this point, which supper are you heading towards? Are you heading towards a supper where you will be presented pure and holy as a bride to Christ? To dine as a guest at his wedding supper? To be with Christ and united with Christ in his glorious eternity? Are you heading towards that? Or are you heading towards the supper where you're going to be the meal? Have you personally made that decision? Follow Christ. This isn't a decision to be put off. This event will happen just like that. When Jesus returns, it'll be just like that. There isn't going to be any time for us to revise our decision. It's not going to be like Eddie McGuire there. You're sure you've locked in your answer. You're sure you don't want to change it because that, that opportunity has been gone. There won't be any time for us to change our 
minds. There won't be any time for us to revise our decision. There won't be any time for us to launder our clothes. There won't be any time for us to act on those regrets. There won't be any time for us to go and beg forgiveness of somebody for what we've been doing to them. There won't be any time for us to forgive somebody else for, for what they've been asking us to forgive them for. There won't be any time for any of these. There won't be any time for us to revise our response to the invitation to faith. That decision has to be made now. When Jesus returns, he's coming for a pure bride. Let's pray. And um, if you feel that you need to be making yourself ready as the bride of Christ. You might want to fall on your knees as we pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. We thank you that your sacrifice is for everyone. There is none too great and none too small who cannot be saved. And Lord, we want to personally thank you today for your sacrifice that you made for us personally. Lord, we acknowledge that we, I, rightly deserve judgment. I don't deserve to be your bride. I don't deserve to be united to you. And so, Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for the enormity of your forgiveness. That no matter how wicked I've been. That as I confess my sin to you, you forgive me and you clothe me in righteousness. You take away every spot and stain and filth and corruption from my life and you make me pure and holy. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we're sorry for when we've rejected your invitation. God, forgive us. And Lord, we set our hearts on you. We set our hearts on you to follow you set our hearts to believe in you. We set our hearts to be obedient to you. We set our hearts to be changed by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, some of us here, we've been Christians for a long time. And yet sometimes we've soiled our garments. Lord, we repent of our wrongdoing. 
We repent of our unforgiveness. We forget, repent of our impurities. We repent of our lust, of our greed, of our failure to love. Repent of our slander. And our violence. Our vile language. Lord, we repent of every sin that we have against you. God, forgive us. And Lord, we are totally aware that it's not in our power to be pure and holy on the day of the wedding to the Lamb. And so we praise you, God, that you purify us once again. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in our lives. That this picture of holiness would become a picture of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.